Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And Father God, as we come here tonight, as we grapple with this topic um, on war that for some uh, might be really close to home, for some comes with a history, for some comes with hurt, maybe it just comes with an element of interest. Lord, we ask that you will, you will be present in this service. We thank you that you are here and that you are with us. And as Richard speaks from your word and speaks about this topic, we pray that his words will be of you and anything that isn't of you that will be taken away and that we will have hearts and minds open to hear from you tonight. Amen. So the structure of this evening is Richard is going to come up in a minute and speak and then we are going to take a a short break. I'm going to get the panel to come up and introduce themselves just very briefly. We've got Annie over here. And we've got Adam over here, and they will introduce themselves before the question time, but they are just, they're over here. And then we will have refreshments, and you will have a chance to write down any questions. And then we will have a question time to end our service. So, Richard, does our God cause war? Thank you. I have my own. Is that, can you hear me all right? Yes, you can now uh, hear me. Um, Those of you who were here a few months ago uh, at an Open to Questions earlier in the year will remember we were considering the topic of the Bible. And in the course of that discussion, someone, and I'm afraid I can't remember who, so if you're here this evening, I apologise for not remembering who you are, uh, someone raised the question, the issue of God's command to the Israelites to enter the Promised Land and to attack the Canaanites who were there and to kill them. Now, clearly, we couldn't properly address that question in the course of that evening. We were discussing another topic, uh, but but Eddie said that uh, we would follow up on it at another Open to Questions. Um, And so here we are, and I'm up here, and he's down there, but, you know, we'll... we'll... Fraternity leave. Fraternity leave, exactly. Um, Since then, we've been looking at 1 Samuel, and there's a lot of war in 1 Samuel, isn't there? A lot of people are killed uh, in the description of the events in 1 Samuel. And then, of course, we've got the 100th anniversary of the First World War, the armistice at the end of the First World War coming up. And so we decided that it would be a good idea to broaden the subject to the topic of war generally. And that's what we're doing this evening. But but let's go back to the original issue, the, the, the issue that was raised a few months ago. You see... A number of Christians read the accounts of the Israelites entering Canaan and some associated passages in the Bible, and they find it very hard to believe that God really did say the things that the Bible says he said in those accounts. We had an example of them a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 15, and I'll just remind you of what it says. This is the start of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul... I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And a number of Christians say, did God really say that? And they they doubt that, and as a result, they wonder whether the Bible is reliable. But then there are other people, the so-called new atheists, Richard Dawkins and the like, and they say, they point to the very same passages, and they say, that God portrayed in the Bible is not worthy of our worship. And they use various terms to describe God, none of them very complimentary. In fact, they go further and they say the worship of that God, in fact the worship of any God, leads people to aggression and war. Fundamentally, God causes war. And and where are Christians generally in relation to this? Well, the truth is all over the place. At one extreme, a few people, and it is only a few, suggest that Maybe those passages in the Old Testament suggest that God might order aggressive war today. The other end, there's a long tradition of Christian pacifism. People who say that under no circumstances should Christians be involved in war. And there are many views in between those two things. Now, in 15 minutes this evening... I can't possibly address all of that. And I'm not even going to try to address it. I've put that in front of you so that you hear the range of subjects that you might want to address in your questions this evening. What I'm going to do in the next 15 minutes is something much more limited. My aims are more modest. I simply want to make a few points with a view to clarifying various matters and hopefully facilitating the discussion. I'm going to focus, at least initially, on the issue of the driving out of the Canaanites. Uh, Not because I want to restrict discussion, but because I think if we try to clarify a few points about that, it might help us in other subjects as well. But please don't feel you're restricted to that in the questions you might ask subsequently. So, just a, a few points. Point number one, important one but a limited one. We need to be terribly careful with our terminology. You will sometimes hear it said, do you know God ordered genocide in the Bible? God did not order genocide in the Bible. Now, what happened still requires a lot of thought and is still disturbing, but it was not genocide for a whole series of reasons. In particular, if you read what the Bible actually says, God says, I will drive the Canaanites out of the promised land. Uh, The people who remained were killed, but but it was not genocide. And, And it's important to make sure that we're having the debate on the basis of what the Bible says, difficult or easy, rather than some exaggerated emotive characterization of it. As I say, it doesn't make the problem go away, but let's make sure we are really reading what the Bible actually says rather than what it doesn't say. So that's that's point number one. Point number two, there is 
absolutely no justification in the Bible for suggesting that these passages justify aggressive war today. Those passages that uh, of the kind that I've quoted from 1 Samuel occur solely in connection with the Israelites' invasion of the Promised Land and certain events later which might be regarded as sort of mopping up uh, operations. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy, you will discover when it specifies rules for war, it draws an express distinction between what happens in the invasion of Canaan, which is regarded as exceptional, and everything else. Uh, So we need to reflect on the implications of that, and I think there are two particularly important ones. First, note on the Old Testament's own terms, those passages are not normative. We cannot use them to justify aggressive action today. Uh, You'll often hear people assert that Christians have used those passages down the centuries to justify atrocities. When somebody asserts that, please say to them, show me the evidence of that. Because people just assert these things. Um, I I can assure you I know of virtually no evidence of that. Of course there are individual Christians down the ages who've made some fairly extreme statements. but, But actually, mainstream Christian thought has never, ever said that. Everyone's always recognised, because the Bible says it, that these passages were not normative. Uh, So, for example, it was originally Augustine in the 4th century who devised the whole idea of just war. The the ancient classical uh, philosophers had justified aggressive war, but the Christian philosophers said no. No, aggressive war is not justified. And they laid down criteria for just war. Uh, Aquinas, Anselm and various other medieval theologians adding to that. Uh, By the way, specifically, you will often hear it stated as if it were an established fact that these passages inspired the Crusades. They did not. You read any reputable historian, and and they will say that's just not true. Yes, there were one or two extremists who mentioned these passages, but it wasn't the justification. In fact, interestingly, the passages that were used were Jesus' teaching in relation to it. So, just be careful, but the key point is this. Passages are not normative, the Bible does not present them as normative, and we shouldn't use them as normative. And that has an important secondary implication There is absolutely no comparison between what the Bible is saying here and the Islamic concept of jihad. Because I know a number of Christians today worry about that. Now, I'm not a Muslim, let alone a Muslim theologian. I know there are lots of debates about how those Quranic uh, passages apply today. But what is clear on the face of the Quran is whatever they mean, they are unlimited in time and place. They are thus completely different in nature from the passages we're dealing with in the Bible. So so we shouldn't be worried that we have something effectively in our Bibles justifying jihad. We don't. That's point two. Point three. There are four points, by the way, just to make sure you know where we're heading. Point this one's a long one. Point point three. Um, having said all of that. There are innumerable places in the Bible where it states that God 
has killed someone or kills someone or orders the killings of someone. Um, and, and just if we were simply to expunge the relevant parts of Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, and 1 Samuel, we would not have made this issue go away. Let me give you some examples. Um, think about Exodus. God killed the firstborn of Egypt. That's what it says. And then uh, that persuaded the Israelites, the Egyptians rather, to chase the Israelites out. They changed their mind. Pharaoh's army charged after the Israelites. And what happened? They were drowned in the Red Sea. Simply expunging uh, judges and Deuteronomy doesn't, doesn't eliminate that. And then it's important to note that God didn't simply do these things to Israel's enemies. The Old Testament doesn't portray God as some kind of tribal deity. In fact, there is many passages that threaten Israel and see God fighting against Israel as the reverse. In fact, this is something that made the Israelite religion rather unique in the, in the ancient Middle East. Everyone else thought God was just on their side. God wasn't on the side of the Israelites in that sense. What happened is, well, let's just take an example. 1 Samuel 4, in the passages we're looking at, go and look at it afterwards. God is fighting against the Israelites in that passage. And the prophets later warned the Israelites that if they didn't turn back to God and repent of the evil they were doing, God would do to them exactly what he had called on them to do to the Canaanites. They didn't, and he did. And it was, it was absolutely horrendous what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, before him the Assyrians, defeated the Israelites, in the latter case destroyed uh, Jerusalem, And if you want to read what it was like, read Lamentations. It was horrendous. But time and again, the Bible has no doubt whatsoever in attributing that to God. It says that was what God did. Lamentations expressly says that. And we can't drive a wedge between the Old and the New Testaments in relation to this. I could give innumerable examples of that, but take Stephen, uh, Uh, Just before he was stoned, he gave a potted history of Israel, and he talks about God driving out the Canaanites. So he he adopted the the Old Testament. Uh, Take Paul. He did exactly the same thing. He said that God destroyed seven nations. Uh, Those were the peoples uh, of Canaan. Take Hebrews. Hebrews commends the faith of Joshua and others present at Jericho, which is one of the cities totally destroyed by the Israelites. The the New Testament adopts all of these things. Uh, Think about Jesus. Now, we've said before that Jesus clearly treats the Old Testament as God's word. As far as Jesus was concerned, a quote from the Old Testament in context uh, answered a matter. What the Old Testament said, God said. And specifically in this context, just give a couple of examples. Uh, Jesus on one occasion talked about Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, all cities that were destroyed at God's command. And what did he say? He said to his listeners that if they didn't repent, worse would happen to them. And then on another occasion, he talked about the flood God killed a lot of people in the flood. And, and he, Jesus said that his second coming would be like that. 
And that's before we come to Jesus' teaching about hell, which we considered, what, 15 months ago in the uh, evening service. We mustn't drive a wedge between the Old and the New Testaments. It, it, it won't bear it. Uh, we need to remember that the Bible does frequently talk about God acting in a way that results in people being killed. And that brings me to the fourth and last point. If you look at the Bible, time and again, we see that God's primary reason for acting is that he is effecting judgment. And I say primary reason, that is not the sole issue involved in these. I don't want you to hear me as restricting it. But it's the primary reason. So, for example, if you look at the Canaanites... Back in Genesis, it says the sin of the, um, if you use the word Amorites, I think there, um, is, not, is not complete. But then, at the time uh, of the, the invasion of Canaanite, the sin of the Canaanites is stressed. It is stated that this is a punishment of the Canaanites for, for, for practices which were truly horrendous. I mean, they, they practiced child sacrifice and, and all sorts of things uh, like that. The point I'm making is this that the Bible sees absolutely no uh, uh, inconsistency between that and God's love. Uh, John Goldingay, who is a well-known theologian, expressed that well. He says, if there is a contradiction between loving your enemies and being peacemakers on the one hand, and Joshua undertaking the violent dispossession of the Canaanites at God's command on the other... The New Testament doesn't see it, and it certainly doesn't. It holds those two things together, and nor does the Old Testament. I'll give you two examples of that. Um, I bet most of you know the, the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Yeah? I wonder how many of you know where it comes from. Uh, yeah, actually, I knew Lucia would. She had her hand up. It comes from uh, Lamentations chapter 3. This is what it says, chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is smack in the middle of lamentations. Smack in the middle of the author's outpouring of anguish and grief at what had happened to Jerusalem and the horrors that he'd seen, all of which... He attributes to God. And that's smack in the middle. He saw no inconsistency between that act of judgment and God's love. And then what about this from Jesus? You'll know this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Go back to the previous paragraph and you will find that Jesus has just warned the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida and uh, Capernaum that if they don't reform, their fate will be worse than that of Tyre, Sidon and Sodom. The Bible presents God's love and God's judgment as two sides of the same coin. It does that time and again, but one verse that's always worth remembering is what Paul said in Romans 11.22. You might remember it because it's sometimes quoted as this, as note the kindness of God. But that's not what it says. 
it says, note the kindness and the severity of God. They are two sides of the same coin, and we need to be careful that we keep them in, in, in balance. We talk about God being love, but the Bible also states God is a consuming fire. And we're right to talk about God being love. That's fantastic. That's why we're all here. It's because of God's love that we're here. But we need to remember that the other side of the coin... And by the way, it states that God's a consuming fire both in the Old Testament and the New. Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29. In closing, I'm just going to quote the Harvard theologian uh, Miroslav Volf because he expresses a related issue very clearly. It's quite a long quote. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalised beyond imagination and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. That is the Bible's teaching. And I think understanding that is the key to understanding a lot of the subjects we're talking about this evening. Thanks. Where's she gone? Oh, there you are. Thank you, Richard. Before we take a break, um, I'm going to invite the panel up to introduce themselves. Um, so if you, if you want to come up. Um, during the break, you're going to have the chance to write questions down. You might have started doing that already. There is paper and pens on your table. Um, but I thought it would be helpful... Um, maybe you've got questions based on what Richard has been talking about, about 1 Samuel, um, or questions following out of things that he said. But you might have questions directed at these lovely people based on their backgrounds, and that would be helpful if you knew their backgrounds. So you have a minute to sell yourself. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. I'm, uh, I'm Adam. I've been coming here for nine years. Um, I've not been to an evening service for about five years, though, since uh, children took over my life. 
Um, I teach at Colfs at the moment, so I know some of you have your children there. Um, my background is I was an officer in the British Army, so I served out in Afghanistan in 2013. So I did seven months in Helmand Province, uh, mainly based in Lashkagar, but uh, went around a lot of Helmand Province uh, during that period. Um, so I went to Sandhurst. This was something we thought a lot about. We had uh, padres with us all the time, and the ethics and, and thoughts of war was something we considered uh, in quite a lot of depth. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a topic that's very close to my heart. And um, I was saying before I sort of came in here that I think when I was in Afghanistan, that, that is the time I've seen and felt God more than any other time in my life. So uh, a really interesting sort of part, I think, to, to play there. Hi, I'm Annie. I work for the Commonwealth Secretariat, which is a political organisation serving 53 Commonwealth different countries. Um, my job is to organise sort of high-level summits and meetings and gatherings of heads of government, royals, things like that. So it sounds like a bit of a strange mix. Why is that coming to war? Uh, sadly, a lot of them are despotic leaders and um, have committed uh, gross acts against their peoples, including Rwanda, which was just mentioned. It's the place that I'm about to start a big project in. Um, so I come at this from a slightly more academic background, having studied just war theory and things as part of international law, but also having had cups of tea with some of these warlords, and it's a very strange world to work in. Um, my caveat is that I have a four-month-old baby, I'm on maternity leave, and I haven't really used my brain for a while, <laughs> so be a bit patient with me if I'm a bit unclear. Now is your chance to write any questions down. Tea and coffee are going to be served over there, and donuts and cake. Um, so please make make use of that. Um, if you are struggling for questions, have a chat with the people around you. It'd be great if we had some table questions um, as well as kind of individual questions. There will be a bowl appearing at the front in a minute, um, and I will come round as well and collect any questions. Off you go. Okay, if you could take your seats, please. Just as a, um, what's the word? Thank you, I guess. We have loads of questions. So if your question isn't directly answered, we've done our real best in that short amount of time to group the questions. So at the very least, a version of your question or theme hopefully will get attempted. If it isn't, then please do feel free to grab a poor panel member at the end and grill them um, until you get your question answered. But we're going to do our very best. And we are going to start with a general question to the panel. Should St. John's be involved in so many remembrance events? Are we just celebrating war? That's a really tough question. Um, in my opinion, we, I think, especially with the Remembrance Day services, the starting point are the Great War and the Second World War, of which so many people locally to this community and part of our local history um, gave their lives to the war and entire generations were lost. And so it's part of us remembering what they did for all of us and our community and our local history. And I think that's really important. And it's also a great way to get people interested in the church and coming into the building because um, we do have the remembrance plaques and we've got their names written here. And uh, if that starts a conversation, I think that's a good thing. Uh, I would say from my perspective, 
remembrance has kind of gripped the country at the moment in a way that I don't think it, it ever has in the past. I think remembering the First and Second World War, um, we've got to understand that lots of people were fighting and, and didn't necessarily want to and were conscripted and forced into that war. So, yes, remembering World War I and II, I think, is very important. More recent wars, I feel a bit more conflicted with because, actually, what you've got to understand is everyone joins the army for selfish reasons nowadays. People don't join as a, a need to serve queen and country and, and protect their own. People, people join because they have their own sort of inbuilt ideas of what they want to achieve. So, World War I and II, yes. Beyond that, I think that's still open for opinion. Directly answering the question, what we say in remembrance is lest we forget. The whole object is to remember how dreadful it was. Poppies are red because of the blood. Uh, this is to remember how, how ghastly it was and how people are remembering their own family situations, etc. I, I, I just don't accept we're glorifying war at all. We're not. We're remembering the awfulness of war. And actually, yes, giving thanks for those who did sacrifice their entire lives for it. Um, Actually, I, I wouldn't have the same reservations you do about subsequent conflicts. I, I'm sure people have had mixed motives all along, but we still need to remember the awfulness of war, whether it was the awfulness affecting the entire world or the awfulness, awfulness in Helmand province. And, and I, th I think we do need to remember. Brilliant. Next question is directed at Adam. Adam has had a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> This is like three together, hopefully. Um, this person just says, just interested to hear Adam expand on what he meant by seeing more of God in Afghanistan than anywhere else. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel when I was there, so seven months is not a long amount of time, but it's certainly uh, long enough to sort of get to grips with, with what's going on out there. I mean, I've never felt so vulnerable in all my life as, as the time I spent out there. I mean, I was based in Lashkar so I was in the middle of a city. So Lashkar is the second, second biggest city in Afghanistan, so it wasn't like a lot of the news things you see, people in the middle of the desert. We were right in the middle of the town. Um, we were very actively engaged with the local population. On an almost daily basis, someone was actively trying to kill me. So whether that was someone shooting at our camp, uh, grenades frequently thrown over the wall, uh, we got mortared on, on a lot of occasions... When a mortar lands close to you and the bang goes off, it's luck or God that goes down to whether that's you killed or someone else. And those times when I hit the deck and sort of, yeah, I prayed to God that that, that wasn't my time and that wasn't the end of me. And that's where I really felt God with me. And um, I suppose the other time is when, when you step out of the gate in an environment where there's IEDs everywhere and you're seeing people coming back in who have had their legs blown off and coming back in in body bags with with whatever's left of them you do sort of feel god's shield as you step out onto onto the ground and uh, and i felt i didn't feel invincible but i felt confident that that god would be with me there and even if something horrific was to happen that there'd be a greater meaning to that um in the end so i spent a lot of time in afghanistan praying with with other people who were christians and reflecting on what was going on out there and uh, yeah I, I really felt god with me there Brilliant. This, I think this is directed at one Samuel, but could go further than that. So maybe start with Richard and then see what you think. Did God punish innocent people? Surely some of the Canaanites were just people living their normal lives. Does God punish innocent people? 
Yeah, that, that, that is a really good question. Because blatantly, some people who were not directly implicated in child sacrifice, etc., were killed. And a number of people reason like this. They say, it is always wrong to kill innocent people. Innocent people were killed, therefore God was wrong. And you can see where they're coming from. So, basic answer, I'm sure there were people who hadn't been implicated in the more terrible sins of the Canaanites who were, who were killed. The, the issue is with the basic starting proposition, which is that it's always wrong to kill innocent people. Now, you might think that's a self-evidently right proposition, but think about it for a moment. It isn't. Uh, uh, there are many situations in which killing innocent people uh, would be justified by most, by, by most people. Uh, the, the last chap who was involved in the destruction of the Nazi uh, nuclear facilities in Nor- uh, Norway died this week, and I was reminded of an incident at the end of the, towards the end of the war when the Nazis were trying to transport some of the heavy water and the equipment across to Germany. And the resistance had the opportunity to blow it up, but only on a boat that was carrying civilians. And they decided they would blow it up. And a lot of civilians, innocent civilians, were killed. Uh, Now, I think most people would agree that that was the right thing to do. Uh, I mention that not because it's the equivalent of what happened in Canaan, but because it does illustrate that a simple proposition that if innocent people die, therefore it is wrong, is, is, is inadequate. I think the, the issue is this, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you pull back. There is a danger we, that we set up what one might call an impossible hypothetical. What, what, what I mean by that is, is this. We imagine a situation in which God is commanding something that is contrary to good. But, 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 but actually, we believe God is good. So we're imagining that there's a situation in which a perfect, loving, just, impartial person in full knowledge of the facts and understanding all the consequences of a particular action would conclude that it was wrong. That's what we're imagining. But, but, but God is loving, impartial, uh, uh, just, uh, in full possession of the facts, knows all the consequences, and we don't. And, and, and consequently... I think we have to recognize, uh, number one, that sometimes killing innocent people actually is necessary for whatever reason, and sometimes it is indeed something that somebody with all those attributes, viz. God, would do. But, but, but the basic answer to your question is, yes, I suspect some innocent people did die, and that, you know, that's uncomfortable. I, don't, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think, i just add to what Richard said, that it's... Just that it's okay to wrestle with that, which I think you'd agree with. Um, these are that's an incredibly painful thing to consider, especially when we're talking about children. And I trust in the fact that the Bible also says that um, that that children are born without sin and would and are and are welcomed straight into heaven with open arms, and that God has a greater understanding and consideration of everything at play, and um, and and that. Although death is what we see, he might see he might have a bit a greater understanding that's beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Adam. Are you you good? Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> um, okay. 
One of the children in a group today asked about the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. What if a policeman or a soldier needed to kill someone for their job to protect others? Then what does God think of them? And alongside that, if there is a just war in God's eyes, how does this sit with the commandment, thou shall not kill? Do you want to start with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's totally justifiable, obviously. I wouldn't have joined the army if I didn't think so. Um, if you're walking along in London and you see, let's say, a woman on the street being raped and strangled... Are you going to stand by and do nothing? And I think, or I'd like to think, the answer for most people to that question is, you will act. And sometimes that act might have to be violent. And in the case of war, that is the most violent situation required. However, it's something that's called upon in the most extreme circumstances. So I don't think we jump into these things lightly, but there is a time and a need for them, and and I absolutely believe God would forgive that. I don't think there's anything to forgive in that situation. If you are doing that, the the command you shall not murder doesn't mean you shan't kill in any circumstances. Ten commandments in, what is it, 189 words in the authorised version is not a complete statement of the whole of world morality. It's a general general principle. In the situation you set up, I, I don't think there's anything there to forgive. It is the right course of action. Happy? Great. Um, Okay, I see in Jesus a radically different way of seeing things, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount, and turning the other cheek, um, and condemning even the thought of murder. Surely war, therefore, should be the last resort. And that kind of goes along with this person that said, I still cannot reconcile the pacifism of Jesus with the rationale, just war. Anyone? They don't seem terribly enthusiastic to go first. Um, Let's start with the point about Jesus. I deliberately quoted Jesus to show the constant juxtaposition in what Jesus was saying of the kindness and the severity of God. I really don't think you can set up an opposition between those things. Um, it was quite interesting that when Marcion, the heretic of the second century AD, decided that he didn't like all of this stuff, he first of all expunged the whole Old Testament, but then he suddenly realized that actually he'd have to expunge a lot of the New Testament as well. And one of the first things that he chucked out was Matthew's Gospel. Um, because actually he didn't like the things that I quoted a few moments ago because it didn't fit his model of Jesus. Uh, In fact, he then chucked out most of the rest of the New Testament as well. I think he ended up with 12 Pauline epistles plus the Gospel of Luke, which is slightly curious because I could have said the same thing from Luke and from Paul's letters as well. Um, We can't set up uh, this opposition without completely corrupting what the Bible says to us about Jesus. Now, as for just war, um, we can't go through all the detail of just war this evening, but what it's a recognition of is the very principles that, for example, Adam was mentioning a moment ago. It's a recognition on a big, big scale that, yes, war is a last resort. Absolutely, it's a last resort. Uh, But there are some circumstances in which the awfulness of war is necessary in order to prevent some greater evil. Uh, I mean, let's think about the Second World War. Uh, If we'd done nothing, the Jews of Europe would have been wiped out completely. 
interesting, interesting point. So I, 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 I do think that suggesting that that's not right is quite an extreme uh, position. It's worth, worth noting that these things have been worked out over a period of 1,000, 1,500 years. Somebody asked whether there's a good book on just war. Whoever you are, if you'd like to come and have a word with me afterwards, um, I won't be able to give you a recommendation, but if you'll give me your email address, I'll, um, I'll, I'll check back at home and, uh, and make sure I give a recommendation. I think this is a really tough question. They're all really tough questions. This one is particularly tough. Um, I agree. I think in Jesus there is a radically different way of seeing the world. And I think it's important to view the texts in Samuel, in Judges, um, in Joshua, through the lens of what Jesus teaches, which includes seeking out peace and being a peacemaker and as, all the, as the primary uh, mechanisms for moving forward. I think Jesus is also the full understanding of God's love. And when he died on the cross, something was broken in sin that is different. So we fundamentally live in a different world to the one that existed in the Old Testament. And I think that leads into broader uh, discussions about the war against sin and whether it was different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And I know that's complex. Um, But I I would agree that war, and certainly in the context of my job, war is always the last resort. It is never something that should be taken upon lightly, but there are situations where when leaders take decisions, exactly like you were saying about the Second World War, um, and there is no other way to hold them accountable but through the mechanism of war. And I think in that we need to turn prayerfully um, to God and, and seek his wisdom. Great. Just wondering if anyone has a follow-up question based on that. Speak now or... No? Great. Okay. So following on from that, what might be the difference between God causing war and God permitting war? Is there a difference? I turn to your theological wisdom on this. (laughs) (laughs) My colleagues are inviting me to take the microphone. You might regret that. Um, No, I don't think there is any. I mean, frankly, if God... (laughs) From the point of view of the issues we are considering... God is uh, uh, omnipotent. God actually uh, can stop things. Let me not give an example from war. Let me give an example from everyday life. If I walk out of this church this evening and walk across the heath, and halfway across the heath I am mugged, what am I going to say about it? Am I going to exonerate God on the basis that he just permitted it? Why? Why did he permit it? What's God's plans in relation to that? What's going on in my life? God's promised to help me. God says he works in all things for the good of those who who, who love him. So was God taken by surprise? Of course he wasn't taken by surprise. Was he powerless to stop it? Of course he wasn't. So I don't think one can make a fundamental theological or philosophical difference between God causing and God permitting. Now, that doesn't mean that God is the cause of evil. Uh, and we'll get into, get into deep water. So in that sense, God does permit some things. But it doesn't resolve the issue we're talking about this evening simply to say, well, God permits some war. Because you still have to work out how that fits in, into his overall plan of salvation. That's 
not helped, has it? <laughs> really. Uh, but but I, what I'm saying is it's, it's not the solution to what we're talking about this evening. Great. Any more? Go on, Annie. I think I'm just going to add complexity to it, actually, because... It's particularly difficult to consider that when you've got Christians on both sides of the wars that we're talking about. And, and someone actually asked a question, if I, you don't want me bringing that in at this point, um, as to if, if you're, as a Christian, praying and you're one side of the conflict and there's a Christian's the other side of the conflict also praying. Um, and, that's, and that's incredibly difficult at that point. I think um, I, I would just echo Richard's sentiments in that that the, they are one and two of the same thing, causing war and permitting war. But it's it's part of a greater understand us all looking for a greater understanding of of God's full picture of this world. Um, that He sometimes allows things to happen because of free will being in this world, and that and that doesn't necessarily mean that's His want for this world. But it does happen, and I think and I come back to the same thing. It's very complex. <laughs> Great. Question for Adam. Do Christians in the armed forces have to explain themselves to their fellow soldiers? Um, well, yeah, yes and no, I would say. I mean, I was very open with my soldiers. So I, I had 71 soldiers in my platoon for various reasons. We ended up with a large amount with me. Um, I was very open about being a Christian with them. Um, I kept a Bible on my desk and, and would talk about God with them, albeit none of them were ever interesting in sort of sitting and, and praying with me. I would pray for them, uh, and thankfully most of them were okay. Uh, no one died, but one of them did shoot himself, bizarrely. Um, <laughs> I, I, will, I can explain that later. Not now. If anyone's Not now. Interested. Um, but yeah, there's lots of Christians in the army. There are, there are just as many Christians in the army as in normal society. And uh, I, I got very close to the padre that was out there with me. And obviously people who are priests join the army. So they battle with the same sort of questions um, that I do. I think, although they're not actively fighting, really the vast majority of people in the army aren't anyway. It's, it's the infantry that do the vast majority of that. And, um, and everyone else facilitates it. So the, the priests who are part of that facilitate it just like anyone else uh, amongst that brilliant question for annie Uh, do you feel inhibited in entering into conversations with leaders who have committed atrocities among their own peoples Uh, if these conversations are difficult how can progress be made towards brokering peace in war-torn areas i guess in your faith as well yeah um i have so just to clarify what I do, I would work with governments, we'll, we'll set up a task force to host uh, these big summits, and they're often a celebration of their country. So I'll give you an example of one that I did in 2013 was in Sri Lanka with a, uh, Sri Lanka, many people are familiar with the politics of the country, there was a civil war that went on for 20, 30 years with daily terrorist attacks from this, this terrorist group called the Tamil Tigers. And the president and his team that I was working with had been part of the government that had had finally successfully squashed the Tamil Tigers. But they'd done that by moving all the Tamil population into a very small part of the country and then denying them aid. So going against all the just war, um, the ways that one conducts war in an ethical fashion. So they denied them aid, they denied them medical supplies. It was quite a horrendous situation um, and a a brutal way to destroy the strongholds of the Tamil Tigers um, and any support the Tamil people had in the the country. Um, So I came in two or three years later as part of a team that was working to put Sri Lanka back onto the global scale. They wanted to 
be seen as a country to do business with, to be seen internationally as important, to be significant in the Commonwealth. And so I worked a lot with young people who were volunteering um, just, you know, uh, to host events and things like that, through to civil servants and ministers right at the top who... Had, some of which have been directly involved with some of these decisions. And it was really tough to have those conversations. It personally wasn't appropriate for me to have those conversations. I had to work alongside them, listen to things that were very inappropriate, especially over a few drinks in the evenings. People relax and they say things that uh, when their guard is down. And I was really shocked by those. And it took a lot of prayer um, and a lot of time I had a big support network of friends back at home who were praying for me because I did find it very hard it was a difficult place to be and you always had your guard up um, and there were a few situations which were quite dangerous we went into we always travelled with a protection team for example it wasn't safe um, one of the things that I sought comfort from was looking at Daniel in the Bible he's the ultimate civil servant he finds himself in very difficult situations advising senior kings uh, uh, in very in very horrendous situations and often in war um, scenarios and and the Bible is actually full of quite a lot of these quiet individuals who work um, for God in very difficult situations and and so Daniel's one of them we were talking earlier Obadiah Nehemiah um, and these men did incredible work for the Lord and so I just went into it trusting that God was going to protect me through it but it was um, definitely a challenge we can talk about it later if anyone wants to chat a bit more do follow that up with Annie she's got fascinating stories um, final question I'm aware we haven't even kind of scraped the surface I'm surrounded by questions um, Please do come up, um, come and speak to these guys. Um, yeah, don't let this be the end if your question hasn't been answered, um, and I'm really sorry. Uh, but this is the final question for tonight. Isn't the fact that me, the question writer, um, as a religious person has to ask the question, does our God cause war, decrease people's faith in God, and also decreasing our faith in the Bible, as shouldn't it be clearly explained that God could never do such an act? Does that make sense? I, I, I think we've not, we've not massively touched on, I think, the presence of the devil. And I, I think I've seen the presence of the devil in Afghanistan without shadow of a doubt. There were evil people acting to cause terror for a large group of individuals. And I think it is possible that the devil can present himself on earth in mysterious ways. And we have a duty as Christians to, to try and combat that. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how I sort of viewed my role in the army and how um, you justify taking other people's lives. I mean, I would say war is generally it is worse than you can imagine so when I thought about what it was like and you see all the things on the news uh, you kind of build a picture in your mind of what it'll be like for the people who are living within that environment but it, it's at, I would say it's a lot worse uh, and when you're there you see people who are helpless and then you see people who are actively persecuting them far more Afghans died during the Afghan war than Brits there were, there were about four, 400 odd Brits died in that war Hundreds of thousands of Afghans died at the mercy of their own people who I firmly think were, you know, were doing the devil's work and, and God wanted that to be stopped. I, 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 I hope that simply asking the question doesn't cause a problem with people's faith. 
Because one of the things we should do is, is just ask these difficult questions. It seems to me that, that we should tussle with, with these things. Certainly over the years i found that my faith has deepened by facing things in the Bible that I don't understand, that I find difficult, find problematic, and just thinking discussing like this and reading and I hope an evening like this just helps us to begin to think gosh this is this is really complex this is something that I can sort of see dimly but but I can't completely get my 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 hands around and 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 I think I, I think doing that strengthens well certainly strengthens my faith rather than the the reverse um, you say, doesn't the very fact of asking this question, uh, you sort of express surprise that one's asking it, but I think the question is naturally posed by the world around us, uh, and by, 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 not just by what the Bible says. Imagine we didn't even have what's written in the Bible. We would still have to ask these questions, because we'd have to say, well, how does what we see in the world around us relate to, to, to the God? Uh, we we know and and love um, in 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 my somewhat confusing answer earlier, I stressed what you 've said that that there is evil in the world, and we need to take account of that, but God is in control, and we need we 're tussling with that and how that all works through in our lives we 're tussling with that in samuel we 're tussling with it this evening, and it seems to me that if we do that our our or in the presence of God will increase. We will begin to see the extraordinary majesty of God and his, his overarching purposes. And I think that increases our faith greatly. Uh, so I, I wouldn't ever fear having these discussions. And I'm going to say something there as well. Um, I know as one of the legacy leaders here, we have conversations with legacy, our youth group, all the time about different different things, um, war, um, different issues that are going on in the world. And we always come back to questioning is good. Like questioning, um, if you are asking questions about God, you want to know more about God. And that is good and that is positive. And God loves it when we want to find out more about him and his character and who he is and what he means to us as well. Um, so, yeah, please be encouraged by tonight. Um, if you are leaving with more questions than you came with, that's OK. Um, it's OK to be having these conversations. Um, and we would love to be able to continue this conversation as well. Um, yeah, this is not the end of the conversation. Um, We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much. I think our panel deserves a round of applause.